Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For more than two decades, Jeanette Cooperman has been one of the most insightful writers covering St. Louis. And more recently, for the last 14 years, she's been at St. Louis Magazine, where she's explored everything from food to politics to con artists. She's done it all with sympathy for the human condition and breathtaking turns of phrase. Cooperman's last day at St. Louis Magazine actually turns out to be today. And she's here in studio to look back at her remarkable run and to talk to us about what she'll be doing next. Jeanette Cooperman, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And for those of you listening, do you have a question for Jeanette Cooperman? What's your favorite of all her St. Louis Magazine stories? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So Jeanette, so many of us were so sad to hear that you were leaving (laughs) St. Louis Magazine because we've, we've enjoyed reading you so much. But I understand this is not the end of your writing career. It is not the end, and I'm going to freelance for the magazine whenever I have a scrap of time, and I'm also not retiring. People have been saying things a little bit funereal, you know, (laughs) but I'm not dying. I'm not retiring. Uh, I'll be at Wash U full-time with The Common Reader. And tell us about The Common Reader. Uh, Gerald Early founded it. Um, He's amazing, and he founded it as a journal of the essay. So it's been around maybe six years or so, and it has some beautiful writing in it. It's just a chance for me to kind of challenge myself for maybe the last decade or so. I've been doing journalism for a quarter century. I don't want to stop, but I wanted... I love academe, and I wanted a chance to maybe try something new. So you'll be writing essays now instead of reported pieces? Yes, or maybe a hybrid of the two. I'll have to test the limits. Uh, It's a new form. You know, I'll have to figure it out. And can you write essays about anything, or are there specific areas that this reader is is inclined to cover? Well, honestly, this is what won me over. Uh, What Gerald said the criteria were were that it had to be true and interesting. And if that doesn't kind of summarize what I feel like your beat was for your entire career. Big beat. Yeah, it's a huge beat. Um, So was this just, I mean, it it felt like this job was the reason you decided to go. It wasn't a a frustration with journalism in 2019, which can be frustrating. No, I just watched press last night. Yeah, journalism has its issues. But no, I love the magazine. It's doing great. I was completely happy in that job. And I pretty much decided there wasn't much else I would want to do. Uh, in St. Louis, you know, you see those job things come across that other people are going to go do where it's like content or social media. And to me, it's not content, it's writing, it's journalism. So I, I thought I was there forever. But this came along and I thought, you know, I need to stretch a little bit. And boy, I mean, if anybody is up for it, it's you. But this is going to be, I mean, you have been a staff writer for so long. (laughs) And I think my favorite story about you is when you went over to St. Louis Magazine 14 years ago, um, you'd been a staff writer at the Riverfront Times for a decade before that. You were hired to be the magazine's editor. (laughs) And the story goes that after two years, you begged to get a demotion. You wanted to go back to the Mm -hmm. job that you'd previously had and become a staff writer. So what about, did you hate being an editor? I hated all the tugs on my sleeve, and I missed writing. Uh, I would be assigning pieces and thinking, oh, man, I was jealous of the freelancers because I wanted to go meet people. I I like being able to vicariously live about a thousand lives. You know, you get to know so much and you get to experience so much through other people. And when you're sitting at a desk 
assigning things and editing things. Um, a friend of mine said, oh, no, I get it. He said, you don't want to tell people what to do. You want to go do it. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. And so you were able to talk them into it. Was it hard to say, <laughs> guess well, what? I don't want this job you hired me for. <laughs> I, thank God. Ray Hartman was very gracious about it. I, I woke up in tears one morning and my husband said, honey, just go quit. Because it was stressful. It wasn't me. And I was trying to be more of a social worker than an editor and keep everybody happy. And that's impossible. So I quit. And then Ray said, well, would you stay as a staff writer? And I said, oh, my God, yeah, that's my much strong preference. You know? So Ray kind of knew this yeah. was the solution. I think he knew me from the RFT. And he knew that, you know, I probably said, oh, what I miss is writing. And he said, mm -hmm. well, stay in that capacity. And so and that's I great. Did. He figured that out. Yes. You guys did. So you had such a long run. You worked um, for him for 10 years at the RFT. Mm -hmm. And then he owned St. Louis Magazine at the point that you came over there. Yes. Um, now, I, going back, going way back to those RFT years, <laughs> you once wrote that you came to the RFT in the first place because you were a philosophy major and you said you were fresh out of grad school and too shy to teach. Yes. I feel like journalism involves asking intimate questions to people who are virtually strangers. How is that possibly a good job for a shy person? I know. And all through school, I barely raised my hand. Uh, you give me a notebook, though, and it's dangerous. Uh, I think when you care more about the story and the people, it's easier to overcome the shyness. Standing up in front of people trying to pretend I know the truth is exhausting and scary to me. Yeah. But asking people questions is fascinating. You know, I get to learn things, and that's what I like the best. So even from the beginning, did you feel fairly comfortable with that aspect of, of journalism? I did. I did. And has that changed? I mean, in all the years that you've been out talking to people, I know there's a lot of journalists who just get, they get tired of hearing people talk about themselves. Did you ever hit a point where you were like, I just want to sit in a quiet office and not have to listen to this? No, honestly, I never did. And I think the reason is, I realized so many times if you let people talk, and they're going on about their gallbladder operation or their pet picadillo or something. You let them keep talking and all of a sudden they say something that you had no idea to ask about. Mm -hmm. And they open up and those are your best quotes. Those are your best insights. And so listening is sort of like gambling in Vegas. There's a payoff you can't anticipate. And I, I finally realized being shy, it took me a little while to realize that people want to open up. As long as they can trust you, as long as you're not judging them, they really want to tell you even the most intimate things. And that's a gift. You know, that feels almost sacred. So. I love that metaphor about the gambling in Vegas and the payoff. How long do you find that you have to wait people out? I mean, you get amazing things out of <laughs> your subjects. I mean, are there times where you would let them go on for hours before they'd get to the point? Absolutely. Yeah. And you mm. never got frustrated with that? No. Uh, I remember once, this was at the RFT, I interviewed a man who had been tortured in Afghanistan. He didn't speak English, so we had a translator, and he'd been through hell, and so I went in very short bursts. And so I would go for half an hour with the translator, and then I would go back, and then I would go back, and then I would go back. And part of each conversation was just pleasantries, because I knew I couldn't rush him. Mm -hmm. And I knew I couldn't extract a whole lot of truth in some solidified manner. I couldn't trust that. So it had to unfold. Um, and I like working that way. And when it finally unfolded, I mean, was this a story that you were expecting? Or did it did it take a turn? Oh, it took many turns along the way. Yeah, these were this was a life I had no idea, mm -hmm. you know, about. 
We're talking to Jeanette Cooperman. She's a longtime staff writer at St. Louis Magazine. She's headed over to the Common Reader at, at Washington University. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our conversation with Jeanette Cooperman. If you've got a favorite Jeanette Cooperman story, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So, Jeanette, I was earlier just kind of trying to describe your beat and saying, you know, it's at the, the nexus of interesting and true. You really had so much freedom to cover almost anything happening in St. Louis. Where did you end up getting ideas? Um, I know they were probably coming from all over the place, but when you were looking ahead to an opening on the schedule, trying to figure out about what to write about, what did your process look like? You know, it turned out not to be so much of an arduous process because people would talk to me just casually and at parties and they'd say, oh, so-and-so is so interesting. And I would just keep a list. And so I always had a running list. And so I never had to go, oh, geez, what do I write about next? Um, Things national that could be localized, interesting people here, issues that were coming up. Um, it really could be just about anything. So you you wrote about so many interesting people. And I was going back over the weekend and rereading some of your greatest hits. And one of them that I think stands out to so many of us is this profile you did of Eric Greitens. <laughs> and this was while he was running for governor. And going back and reading this, it felt like you picked up on something fundamental about him. Did you come away from that profile with a sense of unease that you just didn't trust this guy? Or am I reading way too much into this in <laughs> retrospect? You are not reading too much into it. I'm very proud. The New York Times called it prescient. And it really was. <laughs> so, yeah, what I came away with is thinking, I don't want to have a beer with him. I mean, th this was something so plastic. Hmm. And you couldn't get past the layers. You know, most people, you think, okay, what could really get him to drop the facade and talk as a real human being? And I came away thinking, well, you know, maybe something about his child. But other than that, I couldn't find a way in. And were you able to get much access to him? There's a part where you guys all go for a walk. But it wasn't clear if you got to hang out for hours in addition to that. <laughs> yes, we went for a walk. And his wife is pushing the baby. And she's trying to walk alongside him and sort of wanting me to move to the side, I think. It was a crazy walk on a narrow sidewalk and all a little bit constrained. I had plenty of access to all his political shindigs and to his you know, meetings and to talk to his media guy and to but I didn't have real access in terms of him opening up. It's interesting you kind of keyed in on his ex-wife as perhaps the secret to understanding Eric Greitens and that ended up being so prescient in that it was trouble with women that brought him down. Yes, Did you pick sure. up on this kind of machismo that later came out in, in his dealings with his, his paramour? Well, it was interesting. I, I did contact his ex-wife, and she did tell me that if she ever chose to talk to anybody, she would contact me. But, you know, for sake of many reasons you can imagine, she yeah. didn't want to, and I totally understood that. But usually when someone has constructed a facade that carefully, the one thing they don't want you to talk about is the thing you need to pay attention to. And he was quite clear about drawing lines around that and saying, you do not contact her. You do not talk about her. 
That's interesting. And there lies some clues of what would end up leading to his downfall. Um, We've actually got a tweet from a reader. Um, It's Amanda. And she tweeted to say that she would love Jeanette's answer to the question that Jeanette asked Amanda during her St. Louis Magazine (laughs) job interview. And that is, oh, God, what was it? (laughs) (laughs) This is actually a great question. I should have thought of this myself. Who or what are you reading right now that you're excited about? Oh, well, I'm reading Normal People by Sally Rooney. It's total fiction. It has nothing to do with journalism. Do you find that you read a lot of fiction? Yes. And does that help you in your job? Well, I read a lot of murder mysteries, which unnerves my husband, because then I go do these really grisly true crime stories journalistically. And I think he sometimes wonders just what, <laughs> what the appeal is. Yes. Yeah, just a little. Let's talk uh, about one of those murderesses we now know, your story about Pamela Hupp. I mean, there's so many twists and turns in yes. this story. Were there parts when you were working on that where you just couldn't even believe what you're finding out? Oh, so many parts. But especially my favorite was I was at home reading through about a 1,000 pages of depositions. And I reached the point where she's talking to um, – the attorney, and she's this is the attorney for Russ, who was wrongfully convicted of his wife's murder. And she says, well, yeah, my husband has life insurance policy. And really, you know, it's surprising he's still alive. And <laughs> Russ said, uh, Joel says, why? And she says, well, I mean, because I sold it to him, and it was a pretty big policy. So, like, he might be dead instead of Betsy. And Joel is just, look, you can feel the double take in the typewritten pages. And he finally says, well, did you kill Betsy? <laughs> She says, just cutting right to the chase. <laughs> yes. And she says, well, no, but you think I did. And, and then he finally says, are you willing to take a polygraph now? And she says, no. <laughs> I mean, what a piece of work. But she almost got away with this. Very nearly. I mean, should that freak us out? Yes. Knowing that there's probably other yes. Pam Hups out there who did it and Absolutely. got away with it. Well, and the police work was some of the worst I've seen ever. Hmm. And that's, I mean, in your day, you've covered a lot of these. Yes. So that's, that's kind of frightening to know mm-hmm. that's right in our backyard. Um, we also got a call from someone named, uh, oh, actually, we have t- two callers who've, who've wanted to share things. Jean called in to say that Jeanette is one of the finest writers. So I just wanted to pass on that compliment. Thank you. Um, and Tino called in to say that they really enjoyed your 2009 profile of artist Ernest Trova. Now, this is before oh, my right. time. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me, what was that story about? Well, Trova was an amazing sculptor. You've seen the falling man you know all over the place uh and he was just fascinating it's just a really creative genius iconoclastic uh very interesting sharp edges like his work you know it's kind of fun to dig into i like people who aren't easy and it seems like you've certainly found a number of them <laughs> they're out there yeah <laughs> now you've also been a ghostwriter, mm-hmm. um including you wrote an entire book and i, I get the sense you're not allowed to say no who i'm not allowed for. to say hence the ghost um, yeah. what's it like trying to channel someone else's voice well the real gift of that was that this person had tape recorded quite a quite a lot Okay, And so it was literally hearing the voice. And in your work now, I know you can tell how important a voice is in expressing somebody. Hearing that voice in my head as I wrote really helped. You know, and you just, it's an act of the imagination, even though what you're doing is true. You just have to get yourself inside that person's skin. So is it a matter of cutting out the boring parts or? Sure, always. Life is a matter of cutting out the boring parts. I guess that is the secret of long-form journalism. (laughs) And life. (laughs) You know, one of the other stories you wrote um, that it seemed like it just had this major impact. You just did this remarkable investigation into how the city was misusing tax increment financing. Uh, And that this was robbing the city schools. And I feel like everyone in town read that story. 
Everyone agreed it was wrong. There were all these activists who used that story to try to charge forward and make big changes. And nothing has changed. And yet nothing has changed. (laughs) Do you ever just feel so frustrated by the futility of good intentions? Yes, that's a good way to put it. The futility of good intentions. I mean, do you think journalism can change the world? Or have you lost? (laughs) Changing the world is too big. I think journalism can often make a huge difference, but I don't think you can count on it. Mm -hmm. And it all depends on who's wielding the most power, and it all depends on whether the public's paying attention. And what do you think was the problem in that case? Why that? I mean, it was a great story. Like, why wasn't that enough to transform our political landscape? We need developers. And there's too much vested interest, and that old system is comfortable for a lot of people, and they're the ones in power. So people want to keep giving these developers sure. what they want. Sure. We're talking to Jeanette Kuberman, the longtime staff writer at St. Louis Magazine, and before that, the Riverfront Times. Um, she's sort of giving us some of the highlights of her career, and boy, there have been so many. Um, one of the other pieces that you did that I really thought was wonderful, it was a really incisive story about Father Joseph Jang. He was the priest from China stationed at the cathedral. Basilica. Um, He was accused of sexual abuse. He ended up being acquitted. Um, And by the end of your story, I was as surprised as anyone. I came away convinced of his innocence. So did I. Did you go into that thinking that that would be the result? No, I try to never go into anything (laughs) knowing the result. Yes, exactly. Uh, No, I didn't. But I, I think it was a very complex, nuanced relationship. I think we'll never know the complete truth, but in terms of what the claims were, I do think he was innocent. It's interesting because we're in this moment where a lot of people say that we should um, we should commit to believing all women. I disagree with that on principle. Tell me why. Because I don't think you commit automatically to anything. Everyone is a human being. If we could just reach the point of thinking that way, instead of people are first and foremost women or black or priests, our categories get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. That uh, it makes me think about the way that the internet has changed journalism, yeah. and the way that so many of us are just on Twitter, just trying to get retweets, and we're saying things that we know are going to be popular with our followers. Mm-hmm. How has that changed the kind of long-form journalism that you've spent your career doing? The joy is that I don't think it has changed long-form very much because long-form is just in danger nationwide on its own because you can't boil it down. You know, it Mm -hmm. can't go for clickbait. Mm -hmm. Not usually. And what I love is that the things that wind up really going viral are nothing you would ever expect. I did a story about Simply Thick baby formula that went viral. Pam Hub went viral. Um, What was the baby formula story? I missed that. Oh, it it was a question about the substance and whether it was actually healthy for babies. And so, of course, everybody was nervous. But, you know, it was a very wonky science-slash-legal story. And it went viral. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You can't predict. And so I think sometimes we underestimate. And again, back to Las Vegas, it is really hard to know where to place your tokens. But... Cats and, you know, I mean, our big click getter was something on the blow dry bar. And then there was a story on how to wear leggings that, believe it or not, is still 
getting clicks. It's frightening when you look at just the numbers. Mm -hmm. Of what does well. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you things like how long do they stay and whether they read it or change by it and whether they tell somebody else. They're just clicking on the headline. Yeah. And that kind of superficial thing only can take you so far. Now, you mentioned this story you did about baby formula that that got to go viral. Um, Do you think the internet has helped long-form journalism have an impact? Or do you think it's making it harder because our attention spans have all turned to 140-character tweet? I think there's some of that. Short attention span is a real enemy. I think the biggest problem is there's no longer funding at major institutions for investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. But I do think the internet, I mean, something like long reads, mm-hmm. a lot of long form gets picked up from various outlets and delivered in one nice curated package to people. So if so they people go are check looking for out, good long form journalism. Yes, and it's you there. can find things without subscribing to a million other publications. You can catch the really good stuff. In some ways, it's a great time to be a reader. Yes. It's just a terrible time to be a writer. (laughs) Not entirely. Not terrible. (laughs) Now, Shannon emailed us to say that Jeanette Cooperman has been one of my favorite writers for many years. Her ability to paint a vivid portrait of people, highlighting nuances that many would not even notice, is absolutely masterful. I was a professional writer myself for 17 years, and Jeanette was always my idol and inspiration. I'm so proud that we went to the same high school and that I actually got to meet her a couple of times. I wish her well in her next adventure. So that's some high praise, but it actually kind of just transitioned me right into a question I wasn't going to ask you. But what is your answer to the high school question? <laughs> Incarnate Word Academy. Okay. Praise be to the Incarnate Word Good Morning Sister Reparata is what we have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a Catholic school grad. Yep. <laughs> now, that brings me to another thing, which is um, one of your most recently published pieces at St. Louis Magazine. Um, you interviewed Anthony Bartlett, who mm. runs the group St. Louis Transplants. They try to help new newcomers find their way here. So now that you've interviewed more people in St. Louis than just about anybody, what do you think is the secret to succeeding in St. Louis? I think finding somebody, and Anthony touched on this, finding somebody who is well-connected and making friends with them, Mm -hmm. letting them know who you really are, not trying to pretend in any way because you want to find the right kind of friends and the right kind of things to do in the right kind of places. So you don't do yourself any service if you go in trying to fake it. But being exactly who you are, but finding people that know people and that will be kind and generous and take you by the hand, I do think you need a Sherpa. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can do it alone. This town's just a little too complicated. A little too clicked up. Yeah, a different kind of click. (laughs) Now, you've had such a remarkable run. I'm sure you could have gone to many other cities. Were you ever tempted to leave St. Louis? Family. <laughs> it just they ends allow there. You to go. <laughs> I would be in New England, and so would my husband. Yeah, we're both only children, so we stayed for our parents. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, do you look back on that with any regrets that you wish you'd written about the broader world? Or, well, I get to write about the broader world at the Common Readers. Yeah, so. now you're going to go do yeah. it. Yeah. So, what do you think you're going to miss most about your job at St. Louis Magazine? The people. Oh, the people. I have the best colleagues in the world. Best editor. Best collaborators. Yeah, I will miss the people sorely. I've been verklempt all week. (laughs) Let's go to the phone lines. We've got one more listener who would like to chime in here. This is Todd calling from Chesterfield. Hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. I just wanted to, uh, I I had read one of Jeanette's articles, and I think it goes back to 2006, 2007 on on Dennis Rabbit. Oh, yes. The Southside Rapist. And uh, I I still think about that article, just what a normal-sounding guy was and just curious what your thoughts were having interviewed him, and um, it was just a fascinating story, I thought. That's funny. I think about that all the time because it was 
unnerving that I actually enjoyed talking to him. This rapist. Yes, he had raped more than 100 women. It was fascinating because in many of those rapes, he was trying to be, in his mind, gentle. Paid no attention to the fact that a woman who was trembling and flushed might be terrified and assumed she was having an orgasm. I hope I can say that on air. And then he talked to me about those when he was violent. And it was hard to listen to. I just let him keep talking. And then later I talked to a forensic psychiatrist who said, he helped me see the pattern. He said the ones where he was violent are the ones that shattered the fantasy. Mm-hmm. they're the ones that let him not feel like he was pleasuring these women. Where they tried to fight back. They resisted, or, they fought oh. back, and that's what shattered his fantasy. And, you know, had I, go back to your point about listening, had I not let him go on, hard as it was to listen to about all those salacious details, I couldn't have seen that fully, uh, seen the pattern. Todd, thank you for that call. That was uh, I was not aware of that case, and I'm going to have to go read that the minute the show is over. It sounds disturbing, but but like a really insightful read. So, Jeanette, um, last question here. Those of us who are so sad about not getting to read your work at, at St. Louis Magazine, is the common reader something that um, just the average person can subscribe to? How are we going to get access to your work going forward? You're going to go to their website and put in your email, and that's all you have to do. Uh, I don't know yet fully the terms of, like, there are three print issues a year. I don't know how those subscriptions work, but okay. I know there's a newsletter. Uh, it's not daily, but, you know, it, it will come in a nice frequency. And you can just sign up that way. And then I'll still be doing a bit for St. Louis Magazine, too. We can still read you there. Yeah. Are you going to be taking a nice big chunk of time between jobs? Or? Uh, two days. Two days. <laughs> <laughs> Self-vacation. <laughs> well, I guess that's good for us because we will get to again read your work. We won't have long to wait, apparently. So, Jeanette Cooperman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.